2: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, I'm Pierre de The relationship between art and politics has been a recurring theme of my interviews here. Anyone who has heard me broach this subject even once will know that I bemoan the apparent stalemate in contemporary arts political aesthetics and the complicity between cultural institutions and neoliberalism. Tracking the developments in institutionalized Western aesthetic political thought it would be easy to lay at least some of the blame at the door of the New Left. Much, indeed, has been written about the degeneration and failures of cultural Marxism, while my guest today, Craig Leonard, argues for the rehabilitation of the aesthetic theory of the New Left's grandfather, Herbert Marcuse. Leonard's book, Uncommon Sense, reads Marcuse's aesthetics as politically necessary to the point of demanding attention beyond the mere practice of art. Drawing on Marcuse's notion of radical sensibility, Leonard highlights the aesthetic promise of the practice of defamiliarization in art and politics. Leonard brings forward Marcuse's claim that the aesthetic dimension is political because of its refusal to operate according to the repressive common sense that establishes and maintains relationships dictated by advanced capitalism. Craig Leonard is an artist and an assistant professor of art at NSCAT.
1: Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Pierre. It's lovely to be here.
2: A lot of the book hinges on a 1967 lecture by Marcuse called Art in the One-Dimensional Society, which he delivered to students of the School of Visual Arts in New York. I was a little bit embarrassed to find that I'd not only not read the text, but I never heard of it. However, you you have relieved me a little bit of this guilt because you say in the book that actually even a lot of the audiences to that lecture didn't quite understand what was going on. Thankfully you've written a book to to help us out through this particular text. But before we get into any of this, I want to ask you about your practice and your experience as an artist and also in some sense as a researcher that brought you to consider Marcus at all. What problems what problems can we solve in Marcusa?
1: I am an artist, a practicing artist, I would say. My practice engages performance, installation, art, research, as you said, uh, often archival research and um, restaging, reimagining, or um, analyzing archival material to bring it into a a contemporary context. Uh, I'm also a teacher uh, at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design in Halifax, where I teach studio courses primarily um, related to that subject matter I just described around installation, art, research, performance, with often a focus on printed matter or artist books and the documents of process. What brought me to Marcuse? That is a bit of a story, but in short, I ended up doing a PhD dissertation with Juliana Rabentish, at the Hochschule für Gestaltung in Offenbach, Germany. And I began that, pro- that program uh, with a specific project on uh, Adorno's approach to, or use of dissonance, interest in dissonance. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of my early research was on Adorno's application, interest in, in dissonance, uh, because of an, my own personal interest in in dissonance in, in music or in noise music, and its um, social implications or applications, even. But at a certain point in the research, I discovered Marcuse. and what became, eventually, became most interesting for me about, or more interesting for me about Marcuse than Adorno, wasn't just their overlap in interests in aesthetics, but was their their what distinguished the two. And as far as, I, I guess we can just say for now, practice, and um, certain things stood out for me, or, or, or actually, let's say, um, were the cause of my shift from Adorno to Marcuse. Uh, that was really, in historical context, it was Adorno's lack of, of support and endorsement of political protest, of the SDS in Germany, Mm -hmm. the student movement in Germany. But then Mm -hmm. Marcuse's, uh, in contrast, his support of student protest in America where he was based at the time. This will begin to address topics that we'll pick up in our conversation between uh, the relationship between art and politics and, or or more generally, aesthetics Mm -hmm. and politics. But I started to feel an affinity, a much greater affinity uh, to Marcuse's position, as far as political engagement, activism, and uh, practical protest, while while still while still maintaining an interest in Marcuse and Adorno's aesthetic, let's say shared aesthetic interests in, in the way they propose their theories although there's differences, we'll get to it.
2: All right, we'll get to a whole bunch of those things, including dissonance, and we'll definitely be talking about aesthetics a fair bit. But I think it would be useful to have a bit of a sketch of what it is that Marcuse, in the period that you're interested in, which is mostly the 60s and the 70s, what it is that he's grappling with. Of course, we have the legacy of the Frankfurt School, which I think by that time has really played itself out, not only in this kind of circumstantial differences of who joins students on the barricades and then, in what form? But where is where is Marcusian thoughts by the time he becomes concerned with art, and how does it how does it fit into the tradition of the political left as it as it forms itself?
1: Well, Marcuse's engagement with aesthetic predates any relationship he would have had with the new left. But so his writing mm-hmm. about aesthetics, or his involvement of aesthetic concerns would go back well to his early, to his his own phd dissertation and his own student pursuits but in his publications it, his interest in aesthetics and the effects that aesthetics have on on the individual and how that is translatable into actual political engagement go back to like there these these themes these threads carry through marcuse's through his publications, including like Eros and Civilization back in 1955. It's present in One Dimensional Man, 1964. Mm-hmm. And just to return to the the first reference you made to that essay. So first it was a lecture at the School of Visual Arts, as you said, and that was in 1967. It was republished in a magazine, a popular arts journal at the time called Arts Magazine, in the same year, 1967. And this became real interesting to me that a prominent member of the Frankfurt School was not only communicating his position on aesthetics and politics through publications, but was speaking to a room full of practicing artists, art historians, that kind of thing. So that was one of the first times I'd ever come across that. To be honest, I can't find any other, or I can't think of any other examples of that type of engagement in a public setting, open to the the public as well, because there are this anecdotal information about people in the audience who were not students but like members of black mask for example in new york who who were in the audience and mm-hmm. um anecdotally were uncomfortable maybe with the, with the way that marcusa was expressing himself and i think we we'll, i want to get to that as well we will get to how that that message that i've extracted and wanted to amplify in in the book Around Marcuse's aesthetics and its connection to politics um, was in in a large way misunderstood, and and that is in large part to Marcuse's his vocabulary and his means of expressing his position. But uh, I think, in broad strokes, Marcuse uh, wished to endorse a total program of refusal. Let's say to the establishment, the Mm -hmm. the Great Refusal. Which would encompass not only the social and economic forms of protest, but and and critique, but also cultural. And this is where the aesthetic uh, concern with aesthetics and yeah. specifically art art making, art form comes into question.
2: Okay, a nice save so far. You've kind of managed to park the question of Marcuse as the father or grandfather of the New Left for at least a, a moment. We will get back to this because I, I I think he's. He cannot be absorbed of all of this quite so easily. But the question, which the the word that keeps on recurring in your answer so far, is aesthetics. So we get to my my favorite question of every single one of my interviews: What on earth is aesthetics? I have asked this maybe of seven people so far. I get a different answer every single time. But I'm going to read something from the book. One of the ways in which you frame aesthetics, you say that aesthetic experience serves as a platform for the subversion of experience and individual consciousness and for a radical revolution of the systems of needs and gratifications." Immediately, there's a, a return to this material reality of the world in which Marcuse's politics plays itself out. But with that in mind, again, what is aesthetics? Why does Marcuse need aesthetics in his in his political political proposal?
1: Why does he need it? So this will be the eighth description of aesthetics. <laughs> hmm. That you've heard at least let's just start with in general what is what aesthetics is, and it can be summarized as a branch of philosophy that addresses sensory experience in relationship to the objects of the ex- external world, including but not limited to art objects so the focus of aesthetics in that sense has become primarily become centered on the sense of sight, although the original intent as initially proposed by Alexander Baumgarten in his 1750 book aesthetic uh, considered all the senses, which I think is something we often don't take into account, yeah. but that aside aesthetics has been especially concerned with what constitutes the beautiful. This will come up in Marcuse as well. Mm-hmm. And, and by extension and often by analogy, which is something I want I take up in the book. It's it is also Aesthetics has also been concerned with the effects on the individual of experiences with the beautiful. Just a a little bit further on that, in slightly more detail, in this way, aesthetics can overlap with ethics. Mm -hmm. And in another way, um, as with Schiller, who is a great influence on Marcuse, aesthetics can also overlap with politics. But the difference is really important between Schiller and Marcuse here, and I I try to draw this out in the, the book is that Schiller views the relationship between aesthetics and politics as analogous via uh, the beautiful in an abstract sense where Marcuse leans mm-hmm. heavily or relies on of the relationship as a concrete one via the radical transformation of the individual through aesthetic experience which he connects to the light pleasure principle or eros and the life instinct but just that these experiences are, are for Marcuse are not transcendent but historically situated and materially formed. That's how I would set the table for a discussion around Marcuse's aesthetics.
2: Already in that passage that I cited, which is one of the whole bunch of rephrasings of the question of aesthetics that comes up in a book, there is this connection between the existence, the practice of aesthetics and its connection to individual consciousness and a revolutionary motive. So, of course, that takes us to to the inevitability of of the fact that art is always political. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the thing that underpins this entire project. The, I, I would venture to say that Marcuse is interested in art insofar as it helps him to illustrate a slightly more expansive set of radical proposals. Mm-hmm. So how do we begin to approach this? Like, what, are, what is the Marcusean relationship between art and politics? Or rather, what it is that, that art and aesthetics do to politics?
1: That's a a great question, and it's at the center of of Marcuse's aesthetics. In the book, I focus on what I see as a very significant and overlooked precise strategy, let's say, or even technique is a better word, that Marcuse uh, proposes or identifies as being the element. Of an aesthetic experience that we can point to, and we can say that this is what this is what is happening. These are the mechanics of this situation that are concrete, yeah. and maybe they're reproducible. Actually, if this is something that is uh, identifiable, and that thing is not to jump ahead of our conversation here, but that precise thing is defamiliarization. In the book, I describe Marcuse's position. On aesthetics precisely through that technique of defamiliarization, which if listeners are not familiar with it, <laughs> no pun intended, it's um, it's not a term that Marcuse uses explicitly in any of his writings. Mm-hmm. But it is one that, again, back to this art in the one-dimensional society transcript, although not using the term precisely, he, he does use the term the aesthetic form of estrangement. And, and he also... Yeah immediately after the use of that term or that phrase, he references the Russian formalist without using the name of the Russian formalist, but he's, he's referencing Viktor Shklovsky, um, who first coined the term uh, yeah. as uh, mm-hmm. in his, in Shklovsky's essay, Art as Technique, as it was translated, which was written in 1917, which is interesting too the year mm-hmm. Bolshevik revolution. And the, um, the term, that the way that shklovsky was using defamiliarization was to differentiate poetic poetic speech from the prosaic so M- marcuse's knowledge of of uh, shklovsky and the use of shklovsky was for him while not not using defamiliarization was thinking about estrangement the aesthetic form of es- of estrangement and its critical resistant implications one of the main aims of of the book was to present marcuse's Rationale for endorsing this aesthetic form of estrangement that I'm calling, de- well, I'm just naming for what it is, defamiliarization. through And it's through Marcuse's fusion that is the thinker Marcuse, who fuses historical materialist, uh, that is Marxist thought, um, psychoanalytic interests in the formation of the instincts, mm-hmm. which is his Freudianism, As well as his Schillerian, like his 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 influence of by Schiller and Heidegger, which is always a difficult, complicated, and and convoluted subject matter to to wade into, Um, but it's important. (laughs) But this this forms all these things come to form his unique view of formalism through a psychosocial lens.
2: Okay, I wonder if we could play a little bit of word association to see if we can add a little bit to this term, which is something that you do in the book a fair bit, and I think Marcuse does as well. So is defamiliarization in some sense equivalent to radical sensibility, which is, I think, another term that Marcuse uses? And also the much more contemporary to us term queerness, an experimental practice of rendering things inaccessible to materialist or formalist systems of comprehension. I don't know if that can bear one word answer, really.
1: I will give you a one-word answer, and that one-word answer is
2: yes. (laughs) Brilliant, brilliant. I'll give myself full marks for reading comprehension. Thank you. Let's see where this can take us. There is a range of proposals about the outcomes and qualities of defamiliarization that you propose. And one of these I'm, I'm going to read from the book. Defamiliarization would be a move towards a vital biological drive for liberation and with a consciousness capable of breaking through the material as well as ideological veil of the affluent society. So at the end of this particular quotation, we have references to pretty straightforward Marxist materialist analysis, and that's kind of what we would expect. Mm -hmm. But also in the context of Marcuse's interest in the eros and his references to the pleasure principle from Freud, there is something a little bit ambivalent about the use of terms like vital and biological drive. And in fact, Marcuse receives a bit of a pushback from his audiences for these proposals. And I would say that if we run this particular formulation, for example, on a few decades, we end up in a slightly ambivalent place because you know vitality and biology um, have a little bit of liberation, really. And you would find these arguments being taken up by an entire gamut of, of political spectrums. So, what kind of approach to liberation is being
1: produced here? To begin to answer that question, I would I would acknowledge the the way that Marcuse discusses sensibility in terms of habit. I've tried to ground some of the more abstract uses of language within Marcuse in something that's more accessible, such as habit, like something that we can all relate to. We all have habits of some sort, mm-hmm. but Marcuse's extension of habit. In the way he extends it and extrapolates it into social behaviors, would begin with uh, acknowledging that habits are social constructions that these habits, when um, normalized, become instinct and automatic mm-hmm. and when that's when that happens, this process naturalizes, so to speak, and maybe square scare quotes, naturalizes. These social, these social constructions, so they're no, long, no longer acknowledged as social constructions, but have become naturalized, and in that sense, have become biological. That process of identifying or acknowledging that habit is socially constructed, and this is, put it that way, through repetition, really, and these are just like really practical, bare bones, through repetition, this, become, this can become instinctual behavior, which is another way of saying automatic which may be then thought of as behaviors and thought patterns as becoming um, naturalized and therefore biological. So unpacking all that returns you to a starting point that is pre-social construction, or at least uh, conscious of the social construction that would um, hopefully liberate, and this is where the the terms of liberation come from. Yeah, like that estrangement, the constructive Mm. idea of estrangement, in which defamiliarization is just the aesthetic form of it, and there are others. It's just the cultural um, tributary of yeah. uh, of total refusal that estranging oneself from that process of social con- st- socially constructed habit can allow one, a, a, uh, the individual, to return to the pre-social construction uh, into a place that is and therefore liberated, and where do you go from there? I mean, that's, that's where other work has to be done, but it's just, it's a stepping outside, it's a release from that, yeah. and framing, in a Heideggerian sense, of, of the limits of one's thought and behavior.
2: Okay, so I'm going to note that I think I was wrong about something a moment ago, in a sense that I threw in ideas of queerness into this whole bus of, estrangement and defamiliarization, because you just talked about the unconscious nature of habits, which, of course, is something that that we we see, see being dismantled by one radical theory after another. But Marcuse, as far as I've understood from all of this, Marcuse wants that to be a deliberate and therefore conscious act. Marcuse rejects surrealism's reliance on the unconscious for their production of the, the great refusal so i'm going to use this to to ask for some more practical mm-hmm. ideas if we are to produce defamiliarization consciously we need to be able to think how that is done
1: before we go there can i just make make one small correction Mar- marcuse does um, he actually celebrates surrealism it's sort of for him a reference point uh, crucially important one of sort of an, an epitome of a total cultural refusal, but he mm-hmm. is also critical in his, di- in a dialectical way of surrealism's overemphasis, if not fetishization on psychic automatism. In other words, just yeah. acting automatically without, you know, that that technique of psychic automatism by the surrealists were, where it's going, almost going into a dreamlike trance and acting from there and, and that being, on it, in its own process, being a form of critical refusal. Marcuse is saying that that may not be so. If, if the instincts, if those instincts that are now being played out automatically have not been questioned, have not been um, identified as being socially constructed and naturalized further subject earlier subject that we were talking about, then you'll just end up repeating that, that behavior.
2: It mm, seems like like the beginnings of the unraveling of the whole idea of unconsciousness.
1: Well, it is, it is really crucial to Marcus's understanding of the unconscious, which he, as I understand, he does not dismiss, but complicates by uh, addressing repression um, and sublimation in, very, in its various forms, not just saying there is a repression and there there is a type of repression. There is one type of repression and there is one type of sublimation, but there are all these various manifestations of both states, one being the unconscious and one the manifestation or the materialization of the unconscious.
2: Let's try to move on to something practical. This is, again, a book that has the practicality um, completely embedded in it. And Marcuse's project, if we are to believe him, is also a practical one. So let's look at some of the stuff that's beginning to happen around him. And in the book you make reference to a 1970 performance, a protest, an anti-war dying that takes the place in the streets of Manhattan, which is put together by the group Living Theatre. I mean, for an easy, easy reference, this is something between the more extreme, um, extreme moment of the Occupy movement and extinction of rebellion, in you know 21st century parlance, I want to I want to ask you is how how you see Marcuse reacting to this particular particular event, and of course this is this is an, a potent moment because we have a lot of things coming together. We have protest that takes on aesthetic form and a formalized. I mean, it takes the form, underwood I mean, the word "form" being 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 relevant here, because to be in the street and pre- to pretend that you're in a theater is is an aesthetic gesture in and of itself. So, how how does a how does a performance like this register in Marcus's politics?
1: The Living Theatre action. So that was in 1972. It was uh, titled "The Plague," and uh, the Living mm-hmm. Theatre performed this in new york city on park avenue and it was an anti-war demonstration but also framed as a dramatic event still within uh, an art context so this falls into the section of the book that um, analyzes Marcuse's use of the term anti-art and there are Mm
2: -hmm.
1: identify or categorize for the sake of clarification hopefully but maybe complicating it a little bit too much but maybe that's uh what has to be done because it is a his, he does Marcuse does use the term anti-art in an ambiguous and and confusing way i would say i, I really feel that that was the the confusing use of the term was uh, responsible for maybe dividing some of the audience members and, and even those who were were sympathetic with his, with Marcuse's political writings socio-political critique so this event that that happened in
2: 1972,
1: mm-hmm. I'm presenting as an example of har- harmonic, what I'm calling harmonic uh, anti-art. I use the term harmonic through Marcuse's writings, but as a way of talking about his non-endorsement of such art practices, but a sympathy with the intentions behind the behind the protest.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The, an interesting term position that I needed explanation for and, and a reason for me wanting to to dive more deeply into Marcuse's rationale for to taking a what seemed like a contradictory stance where, on the one hand, he's endorsing and speaking, he's endorsing and, and being and engaged with political protest. When that protest presents itself in an art context, he does not endorse that form or that that means that means of delivery yeah. which is related to this entire s- philosophical system that marcuse is wanting to distinguish as the, as aesthetics having a role and direct political practice having a role although aesthetics is still political this is this is where it gets not muddy because i think it can be clarified and i have tried to clarify it yeah. but it is not apparent or it seems contradictory so you have the living theater protesting doing mounting an anti-war protest but in the guise of theater and because of that that guise of theater marcuse's position is that living the living theater is actually undermining the political protest by presenting itself in the category of of art minimizing the role that aesthetics otherwise should be taking, which is this this formal defam- defamiliarization and in the, and in that over in this category called aesthetics, that's doing one thing
2: mm-hmm.
1: and over in this category category called political protest, it's we're doing something else. They can have the same intention of a radical transformation, but those radical transformations happen on different levels and in different ways.
2: Yeah, and this gets, as ever in this conversation, it gets both complicated and kind of untenable, really, because, for instance, my propensity is to try to think about the consequence. You know, I already automatically made a reference to Extinction Rebellion, even though the 1972 performance clearly has very little to do with it. Formally, I mean, you cite Marcuse saying, the artist's desperate efforts to make art a direct expression of life cannot overcome the separation of art from life. And I think that, that that is quite key. That it still plagues us, uh, the, the fact that we, we struggle with that separation until this very day. But then the question comes of what it is that the defamiliarization in art practice produces outside of art. So if, if Marcuse condemns art trying to imitate political action, how does he see this happening the other way around. Now, if we could have theatre performance that was political, what bearing does that then have potentially on political action outside? And I'm, and I'm leading us somewhere with this because there is a in this whole anti art complex. There's another example that you bring up of Ernst stockhausen who is kind of a, a, a darling of of the era, who's both <laughs> condemned by, by by some thinkers and also embraced by others. So Adorno, for instance cannot deal with the uses of technology and and concrete music, whereas Marcuse embraces it. And one of the ways that I understand that he does that, one of the reasons I think he does that, is that he thinks that the estrangement, the defamiliarization is so complete in what Stockhausen does, that it is almost kind of by default successful. But I'm still drawn, even within understanding that you know, who doesn't like to listen to a bit of Stockhausen on a Friday night and feel <laughs> a bit pretentious about it? What is it that that Marcuse thinks that that process of defamiliarization in this very reified elite pursuit? What does that do to politics outside? So again, that's kind of pra- I'm, I'm looking for the practical implications.
1: Okay, the Stockhausen case study I take up in the paradigms of anti-art chapter that I've already referred to the, through the living mm-hmm. theater, the harmonic paradigm of anti-art was presented by Marcuse, which in short can be described as pr- art, art practices that remain integrated into existing modes of communication, of, of being, being and doing, let's put it that way. In other words, it's that the art practice is a reproduction of the familiar. Mm-hmm. So that would be under the harmonic anti-art paradigm with the second paradigm being the dissonant paradigm and going back to my early interests in uh, adorno and dissonance i use adorno as the, uh, the theorist who epitomizes that position of the of the avant-garde so the dissonant paradigm is really the, the more familiar sure. one <laughs> not not to overuse that word but the more um known paradigm of uh the avant-garde being um art that responds to art that responds to art that responds to art the third paradigm is the one I want to distinguish I want to differentiate Marcuse from Adorno so Marcuse is he's on board really with the the dissonant anti-art paradigm up to the point where Stockhausen comes into play and Stockhausen I use Stockhausen as the example of someone who is using technology in a subversive way it still could fall within a dissonant anti-art paradigm, but it transgresses that paradigm into a different paradigm that only Marcuse is comfortable in, not Adorno, because of, as you said, Adorno's resistance and fear, really, of technology. But to continue with Stockhausen, so I, I'm calling that a micro, the microphonic anti-art paradigm, which refers to Marcuse's openness to experiments in technology. Uh, but also by extension through the root word of techne to technique. So I'm trying to make a distinction between
2: yeah.
1: Marcuse's openness to to techne, so technique and technology, uh, through the example of Stockhausen, in comparison to or in contrast with Adorno's boundaries that lead up to technology. So bringing it from technique back to the object, or, or keeping it within discussions of the avant-garde object. For the dissonant paradigm, I recount the this event or episode where in 1964 there was um, a Fluxus event that was being held at the Judson Hall in New York City. That was going to include uh, on the on the bill was uh, some Stockhausen compositions to be performed by Fluxus artists. But this it drove a wedge down the center of actions of Fluxus members. And we know that, that that group already is a disparate group of individuals who came okay. under, under yeah. the umbrella of Fluxus. But there, um, while while one, one group of Fluxus artists were inside Judson Hall performing some of Stockhausen's compositions, another group was outside Judson Hall uh, protesting Stockhausen's music under what they called uh, the action against cultural imperial, imperialism. And again, that was in 1964. That was led by Henry Flint and George Machunas. This, this protest, it was two days of protest. And the protest was characterized as uh, a strike against um, Stockhausen's, quote, white aristocratic European supremacy, the way he, he, he spoke about racial inferiority of non-European music. These were, these were terms that were on the, yeah. the handbills that were passed out by the, the Flexus protesters of this event.
2: Let's treat ourselves to a moment of one of the compositions that might have been on the bill. This is the 1964 work, Microphony.
1: that's an event that's happening outside Marcuse's purview but the the important connection here that I I make in the book is that I want to uh, recall to the reader that um, in that same essay art in the one-dimensional society Stockhausen is used by or is identified by Marcuse as the epitome of an avant-garde art practice that also subverted technology and technique this is this is important Point in the book to actually say, as the title of the book is Aesthetics After Marcuse, it's not just following Marcuse's lead here, which it does in many ways, but it also is meant to uh, point to the what I believe to be the the limits of Marcuse's the constraints. Let's put it that way: the constraints of Marcuse's um, aesthetic theory, and I think uh, I I want I, I work to identify that as. Uh, the limits of this microphonic anti-art paradigm.
2: That's interesting, and I, I'm I'm glad that you acknowledge that there was a way in which we can read Marcuse and and what happens after him, with with consideration to what it is that he might have tried to instill, and how much actually is just events running away with themselves essentially. But there is a way in which actually the critique, the contemporary critique that is inherited from the 70s. Is relevant, but in a strange sense misplaced because the there is an elitism that we already alluded to that somehow produces Stockhausen as these archetypally avant-garde politically disruptive artists yet, in this other critique, Stockhausen is also an artist who is impenetrable, whose radicalism depends to at least some extent mm-hmm. on nullifying other cultural nuances and there was you know there's many ways in which we can look at this with very very small degree of subtlety and just you know say dead white man on the other hand and, and bright multicultural future on another but actually this is something that also ends up plaguing the new left as it came to maturity the fact that the whole the whole revolution process has been relegated to elites these elites change function. They have different job titles. They have different education over the last 50 years. But the seeds of that are already there. So if there is a question that we can ask of the aesthetic theory at this stage, it maybe is to speculate what happens and what changes we might need to make to mm-hmm. Marcuse's understanding of the role of art, particularly you know, as exemplified by the yeah. practice of Stockhausen. You know, like how, how do we modify it, knowing that it runs into quite serious mm-hmm. problems, some of which are just rhetorical and, you know, that's the nature of lived politics, but some of which are, are, are potentially kind of dead ends yeah. because, you know, it's not that like no. Stockhausen did liberate no. anyone from anything.
1: This is, a, to begin with, a, a slightly indirect answer to your question be, because it's related to that historical moment of the... Action against cultural imperialism that was mounted by the Fluxus faction. Henry Flint he invited Leroy Jones, otherwise known as a, a Mary Baraka, to attend
2: mm-hmm.
1: to attend this protest uh, of Stockhausen. And anecdotally, through Flint, um, through interviews with Flint, I discovered that Jones decided to protest the protest by observing what was happening from across the street. So very deliberately removed himself from the protest, which was a protest of white aristocratic European supremacy, which is I found very interesting. So I'm using, I use that moment to really to reach the limits of Marcuse's aesthetics as being built upon white male Eurocentric technological and avant-garde examples and frameworks. So attention to those individuals like Brecht, Breton and Stockhausen along that lineage. And to use that, to, to end that section of the book, which is the main section dis- discussing Marcuse into an aesthetics after chronologically and really ideologically, Marcuse's aesthetics into a final chapter that draws on well alternatives to the uh, reference points that Marcuse requires to build his aesthetic theory. So things like, the ne- or not things like specifically, uh, the Negritude movement, uh, I find great richness in the writing of Sylvia Winter, who was someone who was also influenced by Negritude, yeah. um, as, as counter voices and counter histories uh, and a counter aesthetics um, with beyond Marcuse's framework. So the final chapter ends with that sort of analysis um, yeah. as best as. I was able to do in, in a, in this book form. So I think that to answer your question more directly now, I think that Marcuse's aesthetics is um, practically useful in identification of something that is understandable, like defamiliarization, but that it was limited um, in his case to the attention, areas of attention that he was allowing himself to have. Mm-hmm. So by, Opening those areas of attention up through whatever means possible, uh, I think that that's where we get beyond uh, the limitations that Marcuse's Aesthetics presents.
2: Okay. I want us to go back to another historical paradigm, a set of events that I think. Potential illustrates some of the tensions already during Marcuse's life and while, while he's still able to observe what is happening. So the 1970s in the visual arts are an interesting moment where a lot of things happen. Conceptual art really takes hold and with it comes the idea of institutional critique. Now, I've run a couple of other interviews, including with the curator, Karen Archie. I heard
1: that. It was which, excellent.
2: Mm, thank you which looked at the relationship with conceptualisms and the critiques of the institution. But actually, Marcuse does something very useful himself without even coming anywhere near the museum. So he talks about, right at the beginning of One Dimensional Man, he talks about the smoothness of institutions in which the world is mediated for us. I'm interested in in, in what Marcuse made of the conceptual artist movement and their attempts to undermine some of the smoothness of of institutions. Yeah.
1: yes. In the uh, in the chapter in the book uh, that I t- titled "Instinctual Crit- Critique" as being a Marcusean version of institutional critique. You're referring to the famous opening lines of One-Dimensional Man, which refer to societal smoothness in derogatory terms, and that. And that exact quote is: I have it here. A comfortable, smooth, reasonable, democratic unfreedom prevailing in advanced industrial civilization—a token of technical progress. <laughs> the, the chapter that where I want to address, really, because of my own interest in, in institutional critique and my own interest in conceptual art, um, I wanted to question that and and run it through a Marcusean. Meat grinder, uh, <laughs> <laughs> where so the the chapter that I uh, as I said I titled instinctual critique it compares the historical genre of institutional cr- critique um, and I use the exa- the early examples of Lawrence Wiener and shortly afterward Michael Asher and the theoretical and art historical presentation by Benjamin Buchloh he is, these are these are touchstones here and Buchloh is someone that I uh, I want to converse with directly because uh, of his uh, own reference to Marcuse in passing um, as when he's when he's speaking of Seth Siegelov, Lucy Lepard, and uh, Robert Berry as presenting a position that is reminiscent of, and this is a quote, Marcuse's Freudo-Marxist philosophy of liberation. (laughs) So I have to take this on if I'm talking about Marcuse in an art world context. Yeah. So I want to reclaim it actually as a, as the theoretical groundwork uh, of instinctual critique. So to, to acknowledge that, yes, Marcuse is Freudo Marxist. Okay. That's, that's fair enough, but that's not necessarily derogatory. And I want to reclaim it as the theoretical groundwork where um, instead of institutional critique, Marcuse's instinctual critique is uh, or connects uh, his historical materialist critical project to habit and like to the, what we talked about earlier around normalization and naturalization of habit and the effects that dominant rationality or the way it produces dominant rationality reproduces and reinforces advanced capitalist uh, interests. We can just say neoliberalism ensure short. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I want to challenge this really in that chapter. I want to challenge the, challenge the claims of institutional critique by saying that institutional critique itself blurs the line of habitualized rationality itself by imitating institutional yeah. language. Yeah, by, in, by imitating institutional language and de aestheticizing experience through a reproduction of the familiar.
2: Yeah, I think that that's something that comes across throughout the book. There's this kind of duality. All of the proposals that you you dwell on from Marcuse and their applications, they have this kind of double-edged sword of being both very astute as critiques, but also having had the time to show themselves to be not necessarily golden golden solutions to to any any of the problems. Like there, there there's a yes, there's an obverse to each of these stories. And it's very strange to read this material which you situate in its historical moment and to find such, actually such wealth of evidence already for the problems that we now experience in our politics, which is to a great extent, mm-hmm. you know, inherited from that moment in which the new left takes, separates itself from, from certain Marxist traditions and, and cultivates a whole new class of political agents. I find, I find that, that strangely disturbing. It is
1: disturbing, I, and I, to go back to the, the beginning of our conversation, this is why I became and remain interested in Marcuse, because I, I, I'm i not like an apologist, a Marcuse apologist. I'm actually interested <laughs> in the arguments, in the problems, and mm. see, continue to see relevance in what what has otherwise Become, or who has become a mainly dismissed critic, socio-political critic and aesthetic, especially aesthetic yeah. critic. So I, I've been. I guess it is a bit of a reclaiming of the the use and potential of Herbert Marcuse.
2: Yeah, well, God, that's a tough gig, <laughs> because of course, when well, cultural conservatives at the moment try to blame. Marxism for absolutely everything that's gone wrong in the world. They do actually mean Marcuse as opposed to Marx, yeah.
1: Of course they do. <laughs>
2: but actually, to, yeah. I'm going to push you to to find a positive to end on. Um, how do you apply any of this in your teaching? So you, are you <laughs> in your hands, all these art students, who I'm sure are all deeply engaged in the idea of art being political. What do you tell them?
1: I. <laughs> A long pause. Don't a long pause. pause. <laughs> um, I would say that I approach students' activities, student student work, with as much openness as possible and as as little prescription as possible, for allowing me to listen to voices that I may not know, be familiar with. I I don't want to be that smooth smoothing agent that is as a is administrative. Mm. Although, of course, I know that my position in a classroom setting is not sort of the ideal of horizontality. We there is <laughs> there there is some expectations uh, coming from the instructor, from the even that term instructor it's already already sounds a little bit too heavy handed and, and overly pedantic. But I often think of now defamiliarization as a term. I don't want to overuse it because. You know how that works. There'll be a <laughs> there'll be a rejection of that <laughs> if said too often, as being like a solution. And I, I don't believe in I don't believe in de- that. I'm proposing defamiliarization as a solution by any means. It's just an observation that this is something that's it's it's a it's a very practical and identifiable tool where what we know to be familiar question in in questioning, what we know to be familiar by doing something unfamiliar to that. So it's relative now yeah. would produce a different type of type of experience outside of that habitualized one through, through that framework of the familiar. It's, it's, it's very simple actually on that level. And I think that that, that does translate to an applicable type of classroom um, dynamic wherein if if let's just say for example a student continues to repeat the same kind of work again and again and again there's it just allows for a moment of saying there are other ways of doing them outside of what you have been <laughs> <laughs> repeating this is becoming a <laughs> habit I'm not I don't speak that way to the student but it's just it's um, ever present in my mind that Doing something maybe relatively strange for that student could actually be liberating.
2: Yeah, well, maybe, maybe I'll find a link to the applications page of your,
1: your school <laughs> and
2: include it in the show. Notes. I'm
1: not, I'm not here for that reason, but thank you so much, <laughs> Pierre, for giving some attention and your time to this project.
2: Thank you, Craig. Thank you. In Common Sense, Aesthetics of Marcuse by Craig Leonard is published by MIT Press. I'm Pierre d'Alencet and the editor is Marshall Pope. Thanks for listening and join us next time.